Welcome. We hope you enjoy this recording from Christ City Church, based in Dublin, Ireland. For more podcasts and information on the church, please visit ChristCityChurch.ie. Thank you for listening. It's Matthew 23, 1-12, and then we'll skip on and we'll do 37-39. to 39. Okay, starting at verse 1. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. So you must be careful to do everything they tell you, but do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Everything they do is done for people to see. They make their phylacteries wide and tassels on their garments long. They love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to be called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher and you are all brothers. And do not call anyone on earth father, for you have one father and he is in heaven. Nor are you to be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Messiah. The greatest among you will be your servant. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Okay, so now we'll move on to verse 37. Jerusalem, Jerusalem. You who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. And you were not willing. Look, your house is left to to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Okay, so I'm going to pray for Maffy. He's going to be preaching for us today. Um, Father, we just uh, pray for Math that you would um, give him the words that um, you want us all to hear today. Um, and Lord, we know that Mafi is speaking, but you are doing the work in our hearts. Um, so we pray that you would prepare our hearts for what we're going to hear, and, and that would, it would really impact us going into this week. Amen. Amen, amen. Good evening, church. It is good to be here. And it's probably dark outside as well. Wow, we're well and truly into winter at this point. Anyway, uh, if, if, you're, if you're visiting or this is your first time here, then you're really welcome. We are currently going through a series called Encounters with Jesus, and uh, it's in the Gospel of Matthew. And so every single week we look at a different person that Jesus meets or a different or a group of people that Jesus meets, and we look to an- answer one of the big questions that society is asking. So today we're looking at Matthew 23, it's a tough passage, and we're going to seek to answer the question, what is wrong with religion over the next 25 minutes? So it's a big question, not just in Irish society, but all over the world. And the late Tim Keller, in his book, Reason for God, says, it is widely believed that one of the great barriers to world peace is religion, particularly with the major traditional religions and their exclusive claims to superiority. Now, Keller goes on to say that society has prescribed three different solutions to the problem of religion. Uh, One, outlaw it. 
So outlaw religion, which is the case with, with communist China and, and in the 20th century with Nazi Germany, tightly controlling religious practices in order to maintain power. Or secondly, to condemn religion, to condemn it through further education, uh, through arguments and societal change, essentially trying to water down the exclusivity of religion. Or thirdly, to privatize it, keep it out of the public square, allow for private expression only. And you know, the, the church has a history of supporting injustices and of supporting oppression. And, there, and the thing is, there's so many other people around the world who are not even Christian at all, or, or maybe not even religious at all, who actually appear to be far more kind, far more caring, and indeed more moral than, than so-called Christians. And so if Christianity is the true religion, then, then why can this be and how can this be? See, long before the, the secular atheist was able to offer a, a critique of Christianity or even religion, Jesus and the prophets issued their very own critique. In fact, Jesus is religion's biggest critique. And he's religion's biggest critic as well. He addresses this very problem in today's passage in Matthew 23. In effect, Jesus is saying, yes, religion can be a problem whenever it's full of hypocrisy. It absolutely can. But what we're going to see is that Jesus' gospel of grace is going to help us recognize, remove, and replace our inner hypocrite. So fasten your seatbelts and let's get going. So verses one to four. The problem of religion is that we do not practice what we preach. You know, as Jesus teaches the crowds in the, uh, and, and the disciples in the temple, he's saying, if you look at verse two, the teachers of the law and Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. So you must be careful to do everything that they tell you. So Moses' seat means a position of authority, those officially responsible for interpreting and applying the Old Testament law. And Jesus isn't nullifying the law. He's not doing away with it. He, he is saying somewhat tongue-in-cheek, you may certainly do what they say, but do not do what they do because they do not practice what they preach. So Jesus accepts their position of authority, but he questions their exercise of authority. He questions how they exercise it. And this is where the sting and criticism of practice what you preach comes from. Has anybody ever heard, had that leveled at them? No, just me? Alrighty. Well, anyway, this is where it comes from, and, and I'm the only one that, that, that has got this, and that's okay. But Jesus didn't say that uh, you scribes and Pharisees, you're, you're a bunch of hypocrites, and therefore everything they tell you, you should just ignore. He didn't tell the disciples and the crowds to ignore everything that the Pharisees and scribes are saying. Because the attack isn't just against the hypocrisy of the Pharisees but it's against the inherent faults that lie within the moralistic systems that they employ as a means to get closer to God. So look with me at verse four. Verse four says, they, so the scribes and Pharisees, the religious folk, tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and they put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. You know, the scribes and the Pharisees were supposed to know God and help other people know him. Instead, they added to God's law, making it a cumbersome and, and, uh, and an onerous burden. So really what they've done is they've added laws to the laws to help them keep the laws. Is it any wonder they were crushed under the weight of it? And the thing is, they expected more 
of others and they themselves are willing to, willing to bear. You know, one of the keys of pastoral leadership that I've, I've come to, to learn myself is that I'm never to ask of someone else that I wouldn't be willing to do myself. I know maybe, maybe you've been put off Christianity um, by the stench of this kind of hypocrisy. Maybe you've been burdened in the past with little to no help provided to help bear the weight of moralistic expectation. And to this, if you're here today and this is you, to this, Jesus rages. Jesus gets it. He is absolutely raging. He rages with this hypocrisy. From, from verse 13 onwards to 37, Jesus goes and prescribes these seven woes. We didn't read them, but we're going to look at a few of them. Look at verse 13. So Jesus turns his attention from the disciples onto the Pharisees and scribes. And he says to them, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You shut the door of the kingdom in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. Shut the door of the kingdom. It's an elevation of personal desires and traditions over God's revealed truth. And if that wasn't bad enough, he levels a second one at them. And he says in verse 15, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. Exact same wording. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert. And when you have succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. Wow. You know, we think of Jesus as a meek and mild savior. He is really going at them here. Wow. Winning converts, conversion to religion, not relationship with God. So they were winning converts to legalism, which would end up binding them with cumbersome loads that would end up crushing them in the long run. CCC, I want to tell you that we make Pharisees whenever we are more concerned for people's adherence to outward actions than inward heart change. We make Pharisees when we're more concerned for people's adherence to outward actions than the inward heart change. So if the first problem of religion is that we do not practice what we preach, we see the second problem is that we like to parade our piety, verses 5 to 7. You know, Jesus exposes the motivation of the Pharisees and the scribes. And you might be wondering in verse 5 what on earth phylacteries are. I assure you it's not a typo. But what these guys were doing was they were going around and they were advertising their religious deeds. Phylacteries were small leather pouches with tiny scrolls of scripture tied up in them. And they tied these pouches to their arms and onto their heads, trying to take even more literally God's law that was written in Deuteronomy. Our equivalent would be Maffey carrying around a monstrous Bible under his arm Monday to Sunday for everybody to see. And given that I'm only five foot six and my Bible is big, it would look huge on me. But, but that, that's, that, that's the equivalent. The Pharisees were more intent on enlarging these phylacteries so that their super spirituality would be on show for all. They loved the best seats in the house. They loved the prominent positions. They loved being honored. And the thing is, their religion provided a framework for their own self-exaltation under the guise of godliness. And I wonder, are there things that you say or things that you do in a particular way because you have an audience? that you wouldn't otherwise do. You know, it's so tempting to parade our piety, parade our, our sense of holiness, 
And whenever we do that, we feed the religious spirit lurking within us, the need to be seen by others, and the need to be seen to be doing or saying the right things. And this often stems from a a superiority or an inferiority complex, and it's all as a means to win favor with God and win favor with other people. But the bottom line is that we're tempted to pray our piety, to fool ourselves into thinking that we are someone we are not, and to fool other people into believing that we are, but it will never fool God. It's never going to fool God. He sees the heart. He understands the deeper motivation. The hypocrisy is as clear as day to him. And so Jesus rages when religion is superficial and shallow. Whenever it's a sham to feed these feelings of superiority or or else it's perhaps a sham to, to compensate for our feelings of inadequacy. And Jesus prescribes another woe. Look at verse 23. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you've neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat, but you swallow a camel. In other words, woe to you, or cursed are you, whenever you value religious convention over relational conviction. And he goes on to say, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisee, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside will also be clean. You know, the problem with their religion then is superficiality without depth. It's a mile wide for all the world to see, but it's only an inch deep. It looks good on the outside, because they're observing everything, all these measurable things, they're observing to the nth degree for all to see, but inwardly it's absolutely rotten. So the problem of religion is that we like to parade our piety. And the thing is, Jesus doesn't stop here. He goes on and he's telling this to the disciples. And he's warning them that the problem of religion also is that we like to perform for, for our position. So pharisaical or hypocritical religion doesn't just damage the inner soul. So it does damage the inner soul, but it doesn't stop there. It also creates this, a form of social strife because the Pharisees had created a two-tier system that Jesus was warning his disciples against. The Pharisees were on one level and everyone else was on the other level, unable to attain to the standards the Pharisees were projecting onto the other people. And Jesus warns his disciples against this, and he says in verse 8, but you are not to be called rabbi. So verse 8, you're not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you're all brothers. And do not call anyone on earth father, for you have one father, and he is in heaven. Nor are you to be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Messiah. Thing is, the issue here wasn't to do with titles and roles. Each of these titles and roles are are attributed to Jesus, to Peter, and to Paul throughout the New Testament. The thing is, these titles for the Pharisees and, and for all these people were to show that actually they were all equals. They were all united as equals under God. So the external problem was personal and societal elevation, but there's a deeper heart issue, and that heart issue behind all this was the hunting after of titles, feeding the need to exalt the ego to boost the esteem. And I mean, the world levels us at us where, it, where we need to seek the title. We need to go for the promotion to get this title. And once we have this title, it will give us something. 
And once we get this title, that's going to be our foundation. That's going to be our floor. This is who we are. We are on the basis of our title. And you know, Jesus saw through the religious hypocrisy of those who weren't practicing what they were preaching, of those who were praising their piety, and those who were performing for positions of authority. And Jesus challenges the prevailing notions for how to get ahead. Look with me at verse 11 on the screen. The greatest among you will be your servant. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled. And those who humble themselves will be exalted. You know, Jesus is teaching something radically different to the experience of the religious leaders. And now look at verse 30. Look at this for a contrast. This is the woe, the curse that he lays out upon the Pharisees and the scribes. So verse 11 is to the disciples. He's given them a, a better way. And now he is laying out the woe to the, to the Pharisees. And you say, if we had lived in the days of our ancestors, we would not have taken part with them in the shedding uh, of the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourselves that you are the descendants of those who murdered the prophets. And he goes on to say, go ahead then and complete what your ancestors started. And he goes on to say, you, you snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? Do you see the contrast? Their religion was full of self-exaltation, full of enormous ego. And once again, Jesus rages against it. The, the scribes and the Pharisees reckoned that if they were back in the day, whenever the prophets lived, they wouldn't have crucified them like their ancestors did. No, they, they would have went and agreed with the prophets. They assumed that if they lived back 100 years ago or, or all these years before, that they would respond any differently than their ancestors. They had an enormous ego. They'd, they'd, they built up their own profiles. They, they'd self-exalted themselves, and Jesus rages against it. In his book, Peter Haas, uh, a book called Pharisectomy, it's a wonderful word. In his book, Pharisectomy, How to Joyfully Remove Your Inner Pharisee, Peter Haas has a fantastic chapter where he asks the question, what are the fundamentals of a modern day Pharisee? You can see them on the screen behind me. Here is a summary of that chapter. Peter goes on to say that religion is no substitute for an authentic relationship with God. Amen. Amen. Many Christians today serve God out of a sense of obligation. That is the result of guilt or misapplied logic. Thirdly, God looks at the heart of our worship, not the format. Uh, grace is the unmerited gift that results in right living. And often our attempts to protect the true message of the gospel actually obscure it. And that stings me. Christians today are much like the Pharisees in that they spiritualize and idolize their rituals. They actually worship the worship service. Worship often communicates little about God and a lot about us. And then finally, lifeless religion has become the norm for many believers. And the job that Peter Haas wants to do in his book is for every believer, every follower of Jesus to carry out a pharisectomy on themselves, to remove the inner Pharisee. So what's wrong with religion? You know, the problem is that we do not practice what we preach. 
that we like to parade our piety and that we perform for position. And this is Jesus' critique of religion. This is Jesus' critique of religion. So what then is the solution? Look with me again at verse 23. So Jesus says to the the Pharisees, but you've neglected the more important matters of the law. Justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. The thing is, it's easy to give a tenth of your spices, these things that are, are tangible and in front of you, easy to see, and other people will see it. But the solution that Jesus is suggesting here is not less religion. It is not less religion, but it's deeper religion. It's deeper, authentic religion. We get the doctor himself, Martin Luther King Jr., behind me on the screen. You know, whenever, whenever he saw racism in, uh, in the States, and he looked at all these white, church-going people, what did he say to them? Did he say to them that your, your problem is that you're far too religious, or you're, you're, you're too conservative, or, or you, you, you read your Bible too much? No. He didn't say that. He said, let justice roll like waters and righteousness like a, like a mighty stream. And that's the book of Amos. He didn't say go against religion. What he said was get true to the religion that you've got. You don't need less Christianity. You need real Christianity. Christ City Church, we need real Christianity. But Math, isn't this another form of religion, you might be asking? Isn't this just religion on steroids? Isn't this just trying harder than before? And surely, Mafia, your religion and hypocrisy will be exposed in the long run. What then will real Christianity look like? Let's look at verse 37. Jesus has just nailed the Pharisees with these seven woes. He's exposed their hypocrisy. But he doesn't stop there. Look what he says. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. You know, church, religion always tells us what we must do, but it can never provide the power to do it. Religion will always tell us what we must do, but religion can never provide the power to do it. Jesus has critiqued the religious teachers and the scribes so harshly. And the thing is, he doesn't just expose their hypocrisy and leave them hopeless. He longs and he yearns for them to draw close to him, to come to him. He wants to gather them to himself as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. Jesus wants to do this. And he wants to do this toward the very people, the very group of people who would petition to crucify him on a criminal's cross a short time later. This same Jesus is full of sorrow and full of weeping, full of longing for the very people that would put him to death. He is longing that they would receive him as their Messiah. You know, church, religious observance could never empower God's people toward radical, holy, distinct living. Because if it could, then there would be no need for Jesus to go to the cross. If religious observance was all it took for us to be holy and radical and distinct among this world, then Christ's atoning death would not be warranted. But religious observance could not do that. 
Real Christianity begins by throwing ourselves onto the mercy of Christ, who was crucified on that criminal's cross, who bore the weight of our sin and our shame so that we could draw close to God. And today he still longs to gather each and every one of us under his loving wings. And maybe you're here today and and you see a whole lot of Pharisee in you. I want to tell you, Jesus wants to draw you close and draw you under his wings. And maybe you're here today and, and you're not religious at all. And in fact, you've been put off by religion, the stench of it and the hypocritical religion. Maybe you're irreligious. Let me tell you this. Jesus wants to draw you close and bring, him, bring you under his wings today as well. And how can we do this? Only by the impact of grace. No religion says that I obey, therefore I am accepted. And Tim Keller, again, in his book, Reason for God, says, if you're avoiding sin and living morally so that God will have to bless you and save you, then ironically, you may be looking to Jesus as a teacher, as a model, and as a helper, but you're avoiding him as your savior. You're trusting in your own goodness rather than in Jesus for your standing with God. And you're trying to save yourself by following Jesus. Church, ironically, this is a rejection of the gospel. This is a a Christianized form of religion and it's devoid of any transformation of the heart. But look at what God's gospel of grace says. The gospel says, I am accepted, therefore I obey. Therefore, I am motivated to live for Christ because of what he has first done for me. My relationship with him is secure because of what he has done for me. Therefore, I will want to live a surrendered life. Do you see how the motivation is totally different? You know, to the religious do-gooder seated here today, you can be accepted by Christ today, not despite your hypocrisy, but because you're willing to uncover it. The gospel says that we are so deeply flawed that Christ had to die for us, but we are so deeply loved and so deeply cherished that Christ was glad to die for us. And you know, unlike all other major religions, his founders say, do this and you will be saved, or do this and you will receive paradise. Jesus came as the savior. He didn't come as as just the teacher. He didn't come just as the prophet. He came as the savior. God entered into humanity. We sang that and God left the throne of heaven for the manger throne. God entered into humanity and he not only talked the talk, but he walked the walk. And we can embrace this gospel of grace because God stooped down and he entered into humanity in the most vulnerable form. And we're going to explore that more in the next few weeks. He relinquished a throne for the cross so that we could be his. And let me tell you this, no other religion has a God who died for them. No other religion has a God who died for them. So as we begin to wrap up, What is Jesus' critique of religion? You know, it's not less Christianity, but it's deeper, authentic Christianity. And as we've seen, it's rooted in God's grace. It's rooted in in God's unmerited or unearned favor that has been extended and lavished towards us. So if that's Jesus' critique of religion, then how does the gospel of grace compare to this? So if if the problem with religion is that we don't practice what we preach, then God's grace gives us 
freedom from slavery to legalism. It gives us freedom. It means that I can own up to my shortcomings because my standing with God was never on the basis of my good works, but in Christ's work on the cross. And that should be good news for you. It means that each and every one of us can own up to our shortcomings because our standing with God has never been on the basis of our good works because of what Christ has done. Therefore, Maffei, as your pastor, doesn't need to put cumbersome burden, burdens on your shoulders. And I don't need to put cumbersome burdens on my shoulders either because Jesus never intended for us to carry these things. So secondly, if, if there, our problem with religion is that we like to parade our piety, then grace gives us a confidence in our standing with God. Because pleasing God becomes more important to me than pleasing man. I'm less concerned about, about walking around with my huge Bible for everybody to see the best 5% of Maffey's life because I'm content in who God says that Maffey is. My holiness is as a result of what Christ has done for me on the cross, not what I'm doing for him. And therefore, I don't need to obey from a place of fear. I don't have to fear losing God's eternal blessing. Maybe that's you today who has that fear. Let me tell you this. If you're a follower of Jesus today, you do not have to fear losing God's eternal blessing. And then thirdly, if our problem with religion is that we perform for position, then look at this. Grace empowers us for humble service. Look at verse 11. Jesus says, the greatest among you will be your servant. Therefore, I don't need to get ahead in the world's eyes. I'm free from the need to build my own kingdom and I'm free to live in the service of others. Can I just invite the, the band back up again? Christ City Church, the gospel of grace that Jesus came and preached and lived makes it possible for you and I to have such a radically different life. And the root of this gospel is a man who died for his enemies. Is the rich serving the poor? the exalted one humbling himself. And this is the kind of religion that God delights in. And so may we allow Jesus to expose our inner Pharisee, our inner hypocrite, allowing his grace to wonderfully and beautifully transform our hearts, replacing our religious tendencies with the fruit of a grace-filled relationship. Listen, please stand with me if you're able. We're going to pray. We're going to sing a song and we're going to have a Q&A. Jesus, I thank you for your word. And, and Jesus, I thank you that you do not mince your words. And Jesus, as we open your word, we see that you reserved your, your heaviest criticism, your harshest words for those who were, who, were, who were most churchy, for those who were religious. And Jesus, many of us feel the pinch and feel the sting uh, in, in, in some area of our lives. And we pray, Jesus, and we thank you that you do not leave us there like you didn't leave the Pharisees there. I thank you, Jesus, that you long for each of us to come to you as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. We thank you, Jesus, that that is your longing for us and that is your longing for us. And I pray that we would respond and we would go out this week not burdened to, to do more things uh, out of a, a religious spirit, 
but with hearts that are transformed by your grace, knowing that our standing with you is secure. Therefore, our motivations will be different. And I pray that you would, you would come and move and work in us by the power of your spirit to go and be your hands and your feet in this city in this week. In Jesus' name, amen.